0: Anything that we want to dodge on the roads, as much as traffic wardens, it's speed cameras, isn't it? It's that sinking feeling whenever you look at the speedometer and you have definitely gone over. Or worse yet, when you arrive home to that letter uh, which says that you need to attend the speed awareness course and you didn't even notice the speed van. And I mean, obviously we're in church, so nobody's able to relate to that here. Uh, But as we look at that fine or that invitation to the speed awareness course, we generally don't write back to say, "Ah, I think you've got these speed laws wrong. Or we don't turn around to the officer and say, I think this is a per-judgment call from you. And yet I wonder if sometimes we bring God into the courts of our judgment like that. I wonder if we have questioned his judgment or if we've questioned his laws if we have looked around ourselves and thought, I think God has been unfaithful, or I think God has been unkind or unloving, that he hasn't followed through on his promises to me. I mean, think about this. When was the last time that you were frustrated with God? And we can be honest here when we think about this. When was the last time that you maybe questioned his character? It's very easy, I think, for us to bring God into the courts of our judgment. And as we come to look at our passage here this evening, I wanted us to have that as our intro, as the backdrop to what we're going to hear. Because, I mean, let's not beat around the bush, this passage that we're about to deal with is a difficult one. And unless we've become overly familiar with passages like this, I think everyone will have read that passage and been shocked by it. But I want to say that I think that's the purpose of it. I think we are meant to be shocked by it. And maybe more surprising than anything that we're going to see this evening is that I think we're going to see notes of grace which are woven through this passage. I think even in a passage this shocking, we see something of God's grace. And so let's pray for God's help now as we come to look at this together. Let's talk to God. God, you know our hearts almost squirm and recoil at the reading of passages like this. We know how quickly we can bring you into the courtroom, into our courtroom, in a passage like this. But would you ready us to receive your word, to receive your instruction, and would you open our eyes to see your grace here this evening. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the past number of months, uh, we have been journeying through the books of First and Second Samuel. It feels like it's verging on a year. It's been a long time anyway. but as we've done that, we have really tracked the reign of a king who was just like all of the other nations, which was King Saul, and then God's anointed king, King David. But along the way, it has also tracked the Ark of the Covenant. And well, what exactly is this ark? Well Essentially, it was a box, but it was a box which symbolized deeply significant things about God. See, in this gold-plated box, they were, it held the, the Ten Commandments from the days of Moses, and on the top of the box was this mercy seat, which was sprinkled with blood on the day of atonement. And so then, for the people of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, it symbolized God's presence, it symbolized his promises it symbolized his holiness it symbolized his grace and it pointed to the coming of the lamb through the sprinkling on of that blood and so this isn't just a token piece by any means this is deeply significant for these people of israel and therefore it should be treated with the utmost reverence and yet that is not how hophni and phineas treated it it was a while ago now but um, I hope my memory serves me right here I think it was andy took us through first Samuel 4 is that right andy's not even sure but <laughs> we saw how these evil men Hophni and Phinehas uh, they basically treated this ark like a lucky charm and they brought it into battle and they were hoping that it was going to bring them enough luck to win them the battle but what actually happened instead was that the Philistines captured the ark in that battle and the cry in that chapter then was that the glory of, that the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory of God has departed, and actually it turned out it didn't it wasn't going to be just for a short time there either. However, whenever these Philistines they captured this ark boy, did they regret it. It didn't take them too long to realize that. You'll maybe remember that they brought it into the temple of Dagon, who was one of their gods. And Dagon, the statue of Dagon, fell on its face before this ark. And then all of these plagues started to fall on Philistia. And so it didn't really take them too long to realize that they were messing with God Almighty whenever they captured this ark. And so what did they do then? Well, they loaded the ark onto a cart and they send it back to Israel. They were thinking, I am not having this for any longer. So they send it back on the cart. And then we read in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel that they keep it in the house of Abinadab on the hill, which might be, clicking in your memory, that here's a link to where we are now. So they kept the ark in the house of Abinadab on the hill, guarded by his two sons, Ahio and Uzzah. But it is virtually forgotten about there for over 50 years. And now, under the reign of David, which is where we're at now in the story, well, he finally defeats the Philistines. And we saw that in chapter 5 two weeks ago. And then David says now, he says, Gather the people, gather the people together. The glory of God will return. The ark, it's coming back into Jerusalem, into the city of David. It is a huge occasion. So that's where we're at now. He's saying, gather the people together. It's coming back. And look at verse one of our passage, if you can open it there. There's 30,000 people gathered. This is no insignificant event. About 50 years had elapsed, and now everyone's gathering to see this ark is finally coming out of storage again. It's being brought out of the house of Abinadab where it sat dormant, and what a celebration they're throwing. We're looking at this and we're thinking, how wonderful. I mean, this symbol of God's presence and his holiness and his grace, it's coming back to be central in their worship again. And we picture maybe the shouts of Psalm 24 as the ark comes back in, where they say, the victory is ours. Open up the gates that the king of glory might enter in. Who is this king of glory? Some of them might reply the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle see what we have in our heads here is this picture which looks something like tripping the color if you were in london has anyone ever been to that out of curiosity yes i knew that <laughs> i knew there'd be a few so everyone is gathered to see this royal event it's a huge occasion it's a huge celebration and yet what we have here is tripping the color with a twist, isn't it? Because look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now I think it's fair to say that For all of us, we read that and we are shocked. We maybe look at that and we think this judgment seems a bit disproportionate. And if that's the case, well, we have company in David because if you look at verse 8, it says David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. The oxen stumble, the cart tips, and let's be honest, Uzzah does what any one of us probably would have done. He sticks out his hand to stop it falling and he is struck dead and as we read on in verse 9 we find out that in response David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David and instead he basically takes it to sit in another private home again he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite I'm sure Obed-Edom was thinking why are you sending it my way and I want to say at this point if we are shocked by this I think that really is what's meant to happen as I mentioned at the start I think this is meant to shock us as it did David so we might look at the celebrations and think brilliant David you're getting everyone back on track here but it's actually not quite as it seems see this ark is deeply significant it symbolizes god's presence his holiness his grace his promises and so god didn't just give them careful instructions on how it was to be built but also in how it was meant to be treated how it was meant to be transported the ark it was built with these brackets on each corner or maybe you can go back to the ark um yeah so you can see there that it's built with these brackets on each corner and they have holes in them so the poles can be slotted through. And so the ark can then be carried on the shoulders of men without them ever having to touch the ark itself. That is how it was meant to be carried. And it was meant to be carried by priests and it was meant to be covered in transport. It was no mystery how God wanted this thing to be transported. But I want us to look at our passage here and ask, how was this transported under David? If you look at verse 3, you'll see it wasn't done as God commanded it at all. It was set on a cart and so it wasn't at all in accordance with how god had instructed or in accordance with god's wise counsel but it was done in accordance to how they had seen the philistines bring it to them and it seemed to be that ever recurring theme of israel wanting to be just like all of the other nations they're not taking their their instruction from god but they're just looking at what the others are doing around them And Jackie Hill Perry, from that book that I mentioned, she's written a little bit on Uzzah's actions here. And she says this. It should be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, we feel sorry for Uzzah, don't we? From our perspective, he was simply a man with good intentions. He was just trying to help, we say. And yet Uzzah had sinned against God. Maybe he thought he was holy enough to touch something that he shouldn't. Maybe the ark, having resided in his father's home for over two decades, had become too common, an ornament of sorts. In any event, his loss of awe, paired with his failure to do as God's law prescribed, necessitated God's justice. As R.C. Sproul once observed, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. See, this isn't a story about a needless death, but this is a case study of sorts in the holiness of God. Because if God were to overlook even the smallest offence, then he would no longer be holy. And a God who isn't holy, he doesn't really care about right and wrong then. He doesn't really care about a justice, and we have to ask ourselves, do we want a God like that? But as we hear that, you and I also know that we often don't sit on the right side of right and wrong do we i mean the israelites here they had clearly drifted from the worship of god the most important symbol of his presence had just been neglected and forgotten about for over 50 years they've just served under a king who would actually consult a witch of all people for wise counsel and now they're under a king who's been quite comfortable with polygamy so we can see that they have clearly wandered But you and I have the same problem, don't we? And it's called sin. I mean, of all the lyrics in Come Thou Fount, I think the one that I resonate most with are those lines, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Because you and I have wandering hearts. See, we are too often attracted more to our own way, to follow our own way instead of God's. And then as a result of that, then we step outside of God's boundaries or we bend the truth to suit ourselves or we follow our own desires instead or we fit God into the picture that we really want to see. But I want to say that here is some surprisingly good news. It's, perc- it's precisely because of God's holiness that he wants to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from that sin, a god who doesn't care about right and wrong doesn't care then if we're just left in our sin but a god who is holy a god who cares about right and wrong he wants to point us back to himself he wants to rescue us from that sin this passage is shocking yes i totally admit that but do we see any grace in god's holiness And i think the answer is yes absolutely See, at the cross, we see this beautiful marriage of God's holiness and his grace. Because we see that sin absolutely had to be paid for there. It had to be paid for, but the grace comes in that it wasn't paid there for, by the guilty. Humanity weren't marched to the cross, but instead a substitute came in Jesus. Sin had to be paid for, but Jesus chose to go to the cross to pay it for those who would trust in him. God is shocking his people here in his passage with the very purpose of showing them the depth of their disloyalty, the depth of their rebellion, the depth of their sin, and then he's calling them back to himself. And Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, she asks the question that we probably all should have asked by at this stage, She says, if God must judge, then why are we still alive? Haven't we eaten the fruit God told us not to? Haven't we approached God's holy law with something less than reverence? And yet here we are, still under the sun. A grace given to those who deserve nothing but wrath. See, God's holiness, it drives him to call our wandering hearts back to himself. It is his holiness which calls us back to, to him who is our only source of hope. His holiness is not in opposition to his grace. It is part of the driving force for it. And anyone who's a parent here hopefully will know something of that. You don't discipline your children, do you, because you enjoy it? Well, no, I hope not. You discipline them as a result of your love for them. You know what is good and right, and so you discipline them because they've maybe gone wayward and because you know that there is actually another way which is better for them, a way which is good and right. Your judgment or your discipline aren't in opposition of your love or your grace towards them. They go hand in hand, don't they? And we do actually get to see something of that corrective loving discipline in our passage here if we look at verse 9. Because David now fears the Lord. He fears the Lord enough to correct the transport of the ark. And we see that in verse 13, where it says it's now being carried, as it should have been at the start. And we should remember that the fear of the Lord is a biblical thing. It's a good thing. Read this if you want to know any more about it. Because before there was almost too much familiarity there. But now as... David comes before God, there is this reverence. He realizes this time that this is still the God who has authority over life and death. He learns to serve God with fear. He learns what it's like to simultaneously love and to fear the Lord, to worship in awe of his holiness, of his perfection. David learns to serve God with fear, and so should we. Now, i've touched on this a little bit already but the other point that i think we see in this passage is that David also learns to serve god with joy that's why i've titled the sermon rejoice and tremble he learns to serve the lord with fear but he also learns to serve the lord with real joy and those two do go hand in hand psalm 2 verse 11 it says serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling so we have seen already how David has come to fear the Lord through this passage, through his, his view of God's holiness in what happened to Uzzah. And yet, it doesn't actually kill the celebrations which are going on. It doesn't kill the celebration of who his God is. Because as they bring the ark from the house of Obed-Edom, so remember the ark was brought to uh, Obed-Edom after what happened to Uzzah. It was meant to go to the city of Jerusalem and then they pick up the ark again from Obed-Edom, and as they bring it this time, verse 12, it says that David brought it from there with rejoicing. So the celebrations here that are happening, they are actually as good, if not better, than the first time round. So clearly his fear of the Lord that we see happening hasn't driven out that joy. And look at verses 14 and 15. It says, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the lord with all his might while he and the entire house of israel brought up the ark of the lord with shouts and sound of trumpets so it's a huge celebration again which is happening and remember what has just happened before this with Uzzah. so it's not in contradiction with it and it hasn't killed the celebrations however when mishael the daughter of saul enters the picture well The tone seems to change a bit, doesn't it? Because here's David overflowing with joy before the Lord, dancing with all his might. And as Misha looks on in verse 16, it says she saw David and she despised him in her heart. And as he comes home then to bless his household in verse 20, Misha confronts him and she says, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would see she looks at his actions and she thinks well this is a little bit undignified for someone of your position and in fact she seems somewhat embarrassed of him as well as her husband it seems to almost threaten her social standing because as we can see here she is immediately thinking about what other people think of david and well, the result of Michelle's remarks is that she remains childless. And I think that that's the common thing that we have running through this chapter. Both Uza and Michelle, they show us the right way, but by contrast. Both are given as these negative examples to show what the positive outcome really can be. Namely, that we serve the Lord with fear and we serve him with joy see David he serves with fear unlike Uzzah and David serves with joy despite Mishael and we may maybe want to ask well why was David's behavior very right here why was that right for him to do here and well if we look at verse 21 we see the answer for that he says it was before the Lord." In other words, it wasn't meant to impress anyone else. It was before the Lord. And he says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I mean, I read this and thought, what a beautiful and refreshing lack of self-consciousness he has here. And the basis is that it's because he is far more God-conscious. I have reason to celebrate because of my God. I have reason to serve the Lord with real joy. David is much more conscious of God's majesty than his own majesty. Or if we want to put it another way, he fears the Lord, and so he's much less fearful of man. And interestingly then, the servants of David, they recognize this in verse 22. They recognize David's God. And so they honor David for honoring the Lord, which I think is actually quite a beautiful thing. It's a very pure thing, isn't it? They see David's God through David. They don't just see these outward actions and they don't dismiss him for them, but they see David's God through him. But I want to ask us all off the back of this, what does it actually look like for us to serve the Lord with real joy? See, we maybe need to ask Am I sort of painfully self conscious of my reputation? Am I painfully self conscious of my reputation in a way that is going to overpower my consciousness of God? Have we maybe become slightly afraid of showing too much excitement about our God? Are we embarrassed even about mentioning Jesus at a dinner party? Maybe embarrassed about giving thanks to God about things which seem small to other people. See, we need to remember that David in this passage, he dances with almost embarrassing abandon here because he cares far more about the God that he serves. He fears the Lord and so he is much less fearful of men. Maybe we ought to think twice about mocking people for being too excited about God. Like, imagine that this church here, scattered throughout the week, imagine if we went out just overflowing with joy because of our God. We scatter throughout the week, and then we go into our families, into our sports clubs, into our workplaces, whatever it might be, and we are just filled with joy for our God. Imagine the difference that that might make in the city of Belfast. I mean, what would it look like if we went into conversations with very little concern for our own reputation because we were just so captivated by God's glory? And I want to say that maybe we only get that excitement and that joy when we truly fear the Lord. See, maybe in this passage, it is the lesson with Uzzah that causes David's confidence then before Michelle. Because a God who doesn't care about what we do isn't really a God that's worth boasting about. He's just like the rest of us. But a God who reminds us that he is the God of heaven and earth, who has power over life and death, and yet who calls us children. A God who we tremble before, and yet is the God who has reached out to us in mercy. Well, that is a God that we can very much boast about, isn't it? That is a God who is worth rejoicing over. Let's pray. God, you are holy. Uh, And we come now before you with a fresh sense of just how holy you are. But we do thank you that you are a God who really does care about right and wrong. And we thank you that your holiness provides the backdrop for your mercy. That in your holiness you call us back to yourself that your holiness was in fact met with your mercy at the cross where sin was paid for and a substitute provided in Jesus so that we might be saved from our greatest problem of sin. And God, we pray that as we learn to serve you with fear, as we learn to come before you in wonder and awe and reverence, as we learn to do that, God, that we would start to fear you more than we fear men. And so we're freed up to serve you with real joy that we dare to be unashamedly excited about you in front of others. What a God that we get to serve. Oh, that we would rejoice and tremble before you. Help us, Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.